Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and as always, I'll remind you, there are Bibles scattered through the seating area that are yours to take if you don't own one. At the very least, use it this morning, and if you don't have one, we'd love for you to take it with you and to talk to you about anything that you find uh, written there. This morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 4, just continuing the series that our congregation is is uh, in right now and will be in for the rest of the year throughout this through this this wonderful, beautiful, enigmatic, and hard-to-crack letter. And this morning we come to a passage that's got some especially tricky bits in it. This morning, it's a passage, our passage is about rest. It's got me thinking about travel. We all know what travel is like, right? Especially if it's international travel or, or, or somewhere longer, further, maybe, maybe by plane. Travel is a... For those of us, anyway, who don't do it all the time, it's very disruptive, to our lives. There's, there's a kind of restlessness that comes with it. There's almost a feeling in the pit of your stomach that travel has. You know, you're worried about making your flights and that they won't be canceled. You're worried about where are you going to eat and is the money going to last long enough? If you're going on some sort of business trip or conference or something like that, often you're worried about who you're going to eat with, you know, and is it going to be somebody that you enjoy or is it going to be somebody who can help your career or are you going to say anything that's going to mess you up? You wonder whether you wonder whether all of these details are going to fall into line. All the dominoes are going to fall appropriately, and you're going to get home safely. There's, there's just, a, there's just a, a loss of equilibrium when you travel. Am I the only one who feels that? Surely not. And so then home becomes a particularly beautiful thing for you, right? When you're, when you're traveling and you're looking ahead to getting home, what home becomes for you, what it represents, it's a place of belonging, a place of peace, a place where you know and are known fully, a place where, where you know what's expected of you and you know what's provided for you and, and you just rest, right? When you're traveling, home becomes a place of rest. That image, to me, is just one small bit of a much larger picture that is the Christian life. That, that it, we're described as in part a, of a journey right now, some, a journey towards a, a home that's still waiting for us but that isn't yet. It's a journey in which we find ourselves restless and often insecure and often struggling to know what's expected of us and what we can expect, often struggling to trust that there will be provisions that, that we need to, to make the journey successfully. And one of the Bible's most consistent images of what waits for us, of what's offered to us even now through God's grace, is an image of of rest. Rest is one way of summarizing the entire substance of the Christian hope. That in God is provided for us everything we need to rest. That's the central image of this passage for us this morning in Hebrews 4. Now, last week, in Hebrews, the, the, the second chunk of Hebrews 3, we first got this word rest introduced to us. It was in this quote from Psalm 95, which is about Israel failing to enter into the rest that God had promised to them because they didn't believe. They didn't believe he could make good on the promises that he made to them. And because of their unbelief, because they were unwilling to trust in him, they did not achieve this rest. They failed to enter it. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, that same word and same concept is picked up on and, and explored more deeply. What is it exactly that they missed out on? What kind of rest is this? And how can we avoid 
missing out on it the way Israel did? Those are the, those are the two questions that this passage in Hebrews 4 gets at. What is this rest and how can we avoid missing out on it? The way I'm framing it for us this morning is that this passage holds out to us an invitation, first of all, an invitation to join, to enter and share in a rest that's still there and, and available to us. But it's also a warning because the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage offer a warning not to go the way of Israel. It's an invitation and it's a warning. And we want to make sure we come away this morning with a clear sense of, of each. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me if you found Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read this together, uh, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11. This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, he's speaking there of Israel. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is God's word. You can be seated. So I've mentioned, we're going to look at this rest that's presented in chapter 4 as in both an invitation and as a kind of warning not to miss out on it like Israel did. I'm going to start with the invitation, even though the passage starts with one of the warning sections, because I think we really need to get an understanding of what the rest that's held out to us is before we can really appreciate the weight of this warning not to miss out on it. So what is this rest? The, the central section of the passage we just read gets at that, that theme, and it's really complicated. I don't know if you guys had trouble following it when we were reading it then. I've been having trouble following it all week. It's, it's really complicated. It's partly because this author is doing what he's done so often, and that is take sections from the Old Testament and try to explain them. But he does it in a way that made sense to him at the time, using some, some principles that were common then, where you would take one passage that refers to something that's, that's mentioned in another passage and try to use them against each other to understand each other better. It's like you find one word gets quoted in one text and it's a jumping off point into another text that, that maybe offers some clarity. At the heart of what we just read, that's what this author is doing. It's one of the reasons it's a little bit hard to follow. He's talking about Psalm 95, the same passage that we looked at last week, and about Israel failing to enter God's rest. 
But when he mentions that passage and mentions that they failed to enter God's rest, that sort of reminds him, it's a trigger that that reminds him, oh, there's another passage in the Old Testament that talks about God's rest. It's Genesis 2 where we're told God finished his work and rested on the seventh day. So there must be something about Genesis chapter 2 that helps us understand what he meant when he said that Israel failed to enter his rest. The rest that they missed out on is connected somehow to the rest of Genesis 2. Now, that's going to be what we're going to focus in this morning. But I don't want to sell this text short. So I want to really quickly take you through these steps that he takes to get, to the, get, get there. You notice he starts at the beginning with this warning. We're going to come back to that, the first two verses of chapter 4. And then he goes back to the psalm that he's been working with all along. It's a, entering God's rest is about believing. They didn't believe, therefore they didn't enter into his rest. And then in verse 4 he says, For somewhere God is, it's, it is spoken of this way, that God rested from his works on the seventh day. See, there he's going to Genesis 2. The key word in Psalm 95 sends him to Genesis 2 to help understand it. And then he quotes Psalm 95 again in verse 5. And then then in verses 6 through 9 and 10, even somewhat in 10, he helps us he helps to see what he is taking away as the main point. And that is that there's still a rest. If there was ever a rest, there's still a rest that's offered to us as an invitation. What he says is, since this rest that, that Israel failed to get has been around since the creation itself, when God rested from his works, it's before Israel, and since it's offered by David in Psalm 95 hundreds of years after Israel failed to reach his rest, then that means it's still in effect today. It's not just the promised land that Israel missed out on, or that generation of Israel missed out on, it's something that's bigger than that. It's, it's a, almost a, a, a spiritual reality in addition to its physical side. It's something that's held out to David's generation and therefore also to ours. You can see this in verses 6 and 7, but especially in verses 8 through 10. That's where he says if, if Joshua had given them rest... If he had given the generation of Israel that made it to the promised land actual rest, then why would David, hundreds of years later, say that now, today, if you don't harden your hearts, you can enter God's rest? It must be pointing forward to something else. I think what he's getting at is that the promised land and the Sabbath day that they celebrated in, in ancient Israel, that all of these things were really just tokens, little pointers to some deeper, fuller rest that was still to come. A rest that was more closely connected to God's rest at the end of creation than to the rest of the promised land or the rest of the weekly Sabbath day. There's something out there that we're invited into if we accept it in faith. So what is it? That's the main question I want us to answer in, in this part tonight, uh, this morning. There's an invitation to us to enter rest, but, but what is that rest? I think Genesis 2 holds the key. That's where the author goes when he wants to explain what it's like. He goes to Genesis 2. God rests on the seventh day after completing creation. Now, God doesn't rest on the seventh day because he's tired, right? We know that that's not what it's about. It's not like he just used up all of his energy in trying to create the world, and therefore he just had to veg for a day, right? That wasn't it at all. What, what that passage means is that he, in the sense that he, is that he, he rested because everything was done. He had completely and perfectly provided everything that was necessary for his creation to thrive, in particular for his his highest creation, those made in his image, 
to have everything that they needed for life. The Garden of Eden is sort of a picture of what it looks like to rest in God's provision. Adam and Eve enjoyed shared in God's rest because they shared in the fact that God had provided for everything. Does that make sense? God's rest is him saying, I've got it. Everything is provided for. Sharing in God's rest means resting in the fact that he's provided everything that you need. Of course, that's exactly what was lost in the fall. In the fall, Adam and Eve are banished from this realm of God's rest because they refused to believe that he had provided everything that they needed. They began to think that they could provide something God had not provided to them. And so they are cursed with work, hard work, to provide things that would have come easily to them if they had just trusted in God. Have you ever noticed how often this theme of rest comes up throughout the rest of the Bible storyline? It's not just at the beginning. It's the, the substance of what's promised to Israel in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, where all of the things that they need for life are going to be provided to them, and God will be their God, and they will be his people. It's what's looked forward to by the prophets when Israel fails to realize it because of their idolatry. It's what Jesus comes promising when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's what's promised here. What's promised, first and foremost, is this. The satisfaction in God and his provision. That is the first thing and the most important thing that's meant by this rest. It is a kind of satisfaction in God and his provision. Rest is about the completion of everything that's necessary. That's what it meant for God to rest on the seventh day. I've done it all. Everything is provided. What's meant for us to share in his rest is for us to trust that God has completed everything that's necessary and that he's done it for us so there's nothing more that's required. That's what's held out. It's, it's, it's a Christian, it is the fundamental Christian hope. It's what's going to fully belong to all who believe on the day when all things are made new. But here's the thing, don't miss this. It's something that's offered to us in part even now. It's something we're invited to enjoy at least in part, even now. I think that's why this author in Hebrews 4 talks about us who have believed as those who have entered into his rest, as if it's something we're already enjoying. And it's, and it's why he emphasizes today, don't harden your hearts and you will enjoy and share in this rest. I don't think it takes much thought to see that we need this kind of rest so badly. The rest that is a satisfaction in God and in everything that he's provided. Many of you are, are, are in training, right? You're early in your careers, looking ahead to them. You have no idea where you're going to be in two or three years. Some of you are seeking your first jobs. You're waiting for new children. You're looking for relationships that have marriage potential. It is so hard to find rest in this stage of life. I know it because I have lived it. It seems like I, I have always had I said like a moving target for myself of I could rest when this happens, right? I remember, I remember vividly thinking that, that if I could just get Lindsay to marry me, I will be able to rest. Like all the other dominoes will fall into place if I could just get that nailed down, right? And then, and then I remember it was if, if I could just get into the graduate school that I want to, right? If I could just get one acceptance letter. I mean, come on, as the rejections are rolling in, right? 
And then it's if I could just get funded. Right? If I could just get this grant proposal, I can rest. If I could just finish the dissertation. For Lindsay and me, it's always been looking ahead to, it seems like the, the first eight years of our marriage, we're all preparing for something that we knew at the beginning we wanted to do together, which is serve a church, right? The people that we love is give our lives to that. But it took eight years to, to finish graduate school, and that means she had to work to support me as a worthless uh, husband for that period. And, and it's like we were always looking ahead, and, and, and now here we are doing what we want. But, you know, I could still have rest as a moving target for us now. I mean, think about it. Think about how easy it would be to say, you know, I will just rest as a pastor when our church hits X, when this is true of our church, right? Or for us as a couple, we will just rest when we have this, you know? We will finally be there. It seems that by nature, we're always looking to the next target as an end point, but we just aren't ever satisfied. I think that's partly because we're made for another world. That in that lack of satisfaction is a good thing, a pointer to a rest, to an an enjoyment of completion and and complete provision and satisfaction in God that will be ours when all things are made new. But I think this passage is telling us that at least in part an experience of that is offered to us. We're invited into it now. And that is what's so hard to get at. We're urged to seek rest now, that a rest that's in God and in the fact that he knows better than we do and he will provide for us in a way that we couldn't provide for ourselves, that whatever happens to us and however, dis- however unpleasant it is to our eyes is actually God's good purpose for us. Uh, the kind of rest that we're called to now is a rest that transcends circumstances so that come what may, we know that we are in God and in him all is provided for us. What we're called to, I think, is a a kind of living that's not tied to any particular standard that we might reach. A way of, I think, one way of living for heaven, of living for that final rest that's set out for us as a goal that we that we just can't get to yet in this life. One way to live for heaven is to to live as if we don't need to build a kingdom for ourselves here. To live as if we can rest in God's good purpose purposes for us, no matter what comes. Because we know that ultimately he is for us in Jesus and therefore he has provided everything that we need, whatever that looks like. That, that is a kind of rest that keeps you from having to compare yourself to other people, that keeps you from having to worry about how other people think about you. It keeps you from having to always look to that next career achievement just so you can be content with yourself. And it reminds you that, that ultimately there is nothing that can separate you from the rest that is given to you in Jesus. The rest we're invited to share is a rest that is satisfaction in God and in his provision no matter what our lives look like now. I want to give you one more example of what this looks like. I've I've given you something from my own life, but uh, now I want to give you something from the life of one of my heroes of the faith, one of the figures from Christian history that that is sort of a mentor from afar to me. Uh, from St. Augustine. I don't know how many of you are familiar with him or have read any of his work, but he towers over my Christian life and and is always speaking to me. Um, And that's partly because his struggle as a Christian is such a modern one. Like, it is a a timeless one. Augustine's early life is one of restlessness. It's one of constant striving to fill a void. Augustine was a genius. 
and he wanted to be known as a genius. And in, the, in, in his day, in the early, in the, in the, during the days of the Roman Empire, a genius was usually celebrated most when they had an academic life, when they spent time writing and thinking and, and, and being viewed by all people as worthy of their patronage because of how, how, how creative and revolutionary their ideas are. So you just live on other people's money and think all the time, and, and you're known for it and loved for it. Sounds great, doesn't it? It didn't satisfy Augustine, though. He attained all of his goals. His, his books were celebrated. He received higher and higher teaching posts as he worked himself up the ladder. And yet he still wasn't satisfied. Along the same time, he's switching from one sort of philosophical view of the world to another, looking for something that's going to give him answers. He was a, he was a perpetual doubter. He just couldn't get answers that satisfied his questions. And so he switched from one philosophical outlook to another, and he would be content in it for a couple of years, and then he'd move on to something else, always looking for something that he couldn't find. He sought satisfaction in sexual activity. I mean, probably modern therapists would look at his, his confessions, his sort of spiritual autobiography, and probably would diagnose him as a sex addict. That was the, that was the sort of addiction that he had to, to sexual pleasure, and he had a, a, a live-in concubine for years. I don't remember exactly how many years, but a decade at least. And that didn't satisfy him. You know, it gave him temporary pleasure. He liked it for a while, but it, it didn't satisfy him. Finally, he returned to the Christianity of his youth. He began to look at Jesus again and the teachings of the church and to consider them. And he spent this long period just stuck in limbo, trying, wanting to commit, but but not finding anything in the teachings of the church that could get rid of all of his doubts. And he, he described wanting the kind of certainty that he could have about, this is his example in his confessions, the same kind of certainty that he could have that seven plus three are ten. I want that kind of certainty about Jesus. And he couldn't get it. He couldn't get it. He was stuck. And then one day, in one of the, one of the most remarkable conversion stories in all of Christian history, Augustine is in this garden. And his depression and his anxiety is, is being torn over his decision about whether or not to commit his life to Jesus reaches a sort of boiling point, and he's just weeping openly. He just he, he cries out in the words of the psalmist, according to his confessions, How long, O Lord? Why not now? How, well, how long do I have to wait for you to speak to me and convince me that you are who you say that you are? Why not now? And as he's weeping, he hears this voice, a voice of a young girl above on the other side of a wall in the garden, Sing song in a sing-song voice, singing something like, take up and read, take up and read. So he picks up his Bible that he had laid next to him, and he reads from Romans 13, the passage that says put off, and then lists all of these things to put off. And they're, they're a list of things that Augustine had been turning to to try to fill this void in his life, things like sex, things like acclaim from other people. It's, it's a laundry list of, the, of failed attempts at satisfaction in his life. And then it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes that moment in this way. He says, it's as, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All of that restlessness pent up in him 
miraculously at this simple call to put off all the things you know from experience are not providing what you need and to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, to put him on and be satisfied in him, melted away this case of doubt that had, that had, that had shrouded his heart for so long and relieved him from his anxiety. He, he received and experienced rest in a way that he never had before. And this, in one of the best sentences, I think, in all of Christian literature, a sentence that falls in the first paragraph of the Confessions, which in my opinion is one of the best books in all of Christian literature, summarizes his journey in this sentence. It's a prayer to God. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's what Augustine learned by experience, and he's in good company. That is the experience of anyone who has ever tried to find rest somewhere else and turn to Christ instead. The invitation to rest that Augustine claimed and that the author to the Hebrews is holding out to us still stands. It stands for you today. If you're looking for a mathematical problem that's going to prove some sort of existence of Jesus, you're not going to find it any more than Augustine did. But if you're willing to put off the things you know don't satisfy you and to put on Jesus in its place, that rest is offered to you. He still stands offering that all who are weary and heavy laden, who come to him, who trust that he can provide, who are willing to be satisfied in God's provision and to therefore share in his rest, you will find rest for your soul. That's the promise of Hebrews 4, and it's the promise of the entire Bible storyline. Now, quickly, before we move on to the warning which is the main command that we're given in this passage, I want to highlight one more aspect of what this rest is like. We've been looking at it. Israel missed out on it. We're, held, we're urged now to accept it. What is it? Well, primarily, it is a satisfaction in God and his provision for us, that he is everything that we need. I want to make sure that you don't miss this other dimension to it. It's part of trusting in God's provision, but it's, it's really specific, and it's, a heart, it's at the heart of Hebrews' message, so I want to point you to it, and we're going to look at it some more in the weeks to come. It's this. Rest is this. It is trust in Jesus' work, not your own. It's trust in Jesus' work, not your own. Now, here's where I'm getting that from this passage. The emphasis in this analogy to God's rest after creation, the fact that he finished his work and therefore rested from it, the emphasis that's given to that analogy in in verse 10 is that we now share in God's rest when we're willing to stop working just like God stopped working. Now, in Hebrews, just like in Paul's writings, usually works, the word works, has a negative connotation. There's some places in the Bible where it has a positive one. You know, you want to do works of righteousness that are good, that are pleasing to God. In Hebrews, just like in Paul, it it refers to attempts that we make to try to make ourselves good enough to warrant God's favor, right? Works righteousness. And a a sort of assumption that our sin is not so bad that it keeps us from doing enough to please God, as if we could earn our way or perform our way into his favor. It's something that Hebrews refers to in chapter 6 as dead works and sets over against faith in God and his provision. I think that's what the author's getting at here in Hebrews 4. 
We share in God's rest when we're willing to cease works as God did. When we're willing to just give up on adding anything to what Jesus has done as if we could establish ourselves before God by our own righteousness. That just can't happen. And the message of Hebrews is consistently that Jesus, by his sacrifice that was so perfect that it covered all of our sins, has now sat down because it's done. He has, in other words, rested because it is perfect and complete. And we can share in his rest when we're willing to set aside any attempt to earn what Jesus has earned for us as if we could and to enjoy the fact that he has done everything that there is to do. So rest that we're invited to here is it is a satisfaction in God and that he's provided everything that we need. But it, it, from Hebrews' perspective, a big component of that is trusting that part of what God has provided to us is a holiness we couldn't provide for ourselves. And that Jesus' work as our priest who delivers himself over as a sacrifice for us, his work is so perfect that when he sat down and rested from it, he gave us all the evidence we need to know that there's nothing left for us to to add. We're invited to enjoy his rest if we stop working and just believe that Jesus has done enough. Okay. That's the invitation that this passage holds out to us. There's still a rest. It's there for us if we claim it through faith. So what do we do with these commands? There's another big section here, right? It's, it's the first part and the, and the last part of this passage, and there are two warnings. I'm going to read them again for you, and then we'll talk about them. Verse 1 says, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And in verse 2, he says, he makes another analogy to Israel. Look, they got the good news just like we have, and they didn't get in because of their disobedience. They were not united by faith. They didn't believe that the good news was true. That's warning number one. Let us fear. Then verse 11 has a very similar uh, warning. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Two commands, only two commands in this passage are to fear and to strive. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, those two commands seem to fly in the face of this rest that we're promised. How can you rest while you're also afraid, while you're fearful all the time? And how can you rest when you're told to work, basically, to strive, to work hard not to do something? How are those two commands given to us here as a, in, in the same context as this talk about rest, how are those things consistent with rest? In fact, aren't fear and striving, aren't these two things antithetical to the gospel? Doesn't perfect love cast out fear? I want us to spend the rest of our time breaking down both of these concepts. We really need to understand what he means by fear and what he means by striving, or else we're going to miss out on the whole point of entering into his rest. These are the two things we're told to do if we want to enter his rest. So we've got to understand what it is that he means by these two things. Let's take them one at a time. The fear, fear first. We're told to fear lest we go the way of Israel. Are we meant to live in fear? Is that what this means? Live as if we're never sure where we stand with God, always questioning whether we've got enough faith. I don't think that's what this passage is after. I don't, I don't think that would be consistent at all with the kind of rest that we're invited into. I think this is a lot closer to fear of the Lord 
fear as awe and respect than it is close to fear as a sort of terror. It's fear, I think, that comes from recognizing two things. This kind of holy fear, the fear we're called to, is born out of a recognition of two things. It comes from recognizing the, the incredible stakes in the issue at hand, what, the significance of what's involved, of how important it is, in this case, to enter God's rest. And, combined with that, a recognition of how weak we are on our own, a, a deep suspicion of ourselves. In other words, to see that on our own, in our own strength, we are not up to the high stakes that are involved in this issue. We can't enter his rest on our own. That's the kind of fear. I hope that's clear. Let me give you a couple examples to help clarify it. When I started grad school, I remember my grad school orientation, my advisor told us we needed to be afraid. He told us that it would be a good thing if we held on to a healthy sense of fear throughout our entire program. I don't think he meant that sort of quivering, shrinking, debilitating fear. I don't think that's what he was looking for. I think the kind of fear that he's looking for is a fear that is born out of knowing the importance of what our job was, the importance of coming to seminars prepared and of spending the kind of time we needed to do to do research that was going to write substantive papers, the, the importance of the stakes, and a recognition that if we took it easy, if we didn't give ourselves to it, if we just thought that we could, if we were complacent about it, we wouldn't be good enough. A recognition that by nature, we aren't good enough for this important job that's been given to us. The point is to avoid thinking that this thing you're doing, this thing that's held out to you doesn't matter or that you've got it in the bag. The point is to avoid, this, this kind of fear is avoiding the complacency that comes from underestimating what's at stake, as if it's really not a big deal, you sort of wing it, or overestimating how good you are, how, how, how strong are your talents that, that are relevant to this thing you're trying to do, overestimating your own ability, underestimating what's at stake. And here's an example I think gets even closer. On my best days, I carry the same sort of fear into the pulpit that I carried in, in graduate school. There are plenty of days, on my worst days, there's, there's lots of bad fear, right? There's fear that I'll flop or that people won't like me, or that nobody will come back after they hear the sermon. That's the kind of fear that's laced through with idolatry. It's a kind of fear that is fundamentally incompatible with the gospel. But there is a healthy kind of fear, too. And on my best days, I come up with a fear that comes from knowing that people I love need God's word to grow, that their lives depend on it, that I'm not able to produce the impact and the growth that they need by any natural ability that's in me, that even if I were a powerful orator, that itself would not be able to produce the change that I want to see in them. It's a fear that comes from knowing what's at stake, that eternal lives hang in the balance, and knowing that the only kind of change that's going to do them good is not one I can produce. So you come with a, a sense of awe at the moment, and a sense of deep dependence on God to do what you can't do for yourself. That's the kind of fear that we're called to in verse 1. Let us fear because we recognize that eternity hangs in the balance. Whether or not we have faith in Jesus sets whether or not we will enter the rest that's promised to us. And that hearing the gospel isn't enough. It wasn't enough for Israel. It won't be enough for us 
if we don't respond in faith and we can't afford to miss out on it. That's, I think, what's, what's meant by fear. We are to fear. Verse 11 calls us to a kind of striving. And this also could fly in the face of rest, right? On its own, if you just read verse 11, you don't have any context for it, it looks like he's telling you, or you could think that he's saying, work really hard so you can enjoy rest at the end, right? Finish the work that you're set, that's set before you to do so then you can take it easy, as if you've done enough to reach salvation. But that's not consistent with the message of the gospel. It's not consistent with the other parts of this letter. It's not consistent with what we've already seen in this letter, which points us to Jesus and his faithfulness rather than to ours. That can't be what he means here. So what else could it mean? Think back to what it is that we're supposed to fear. What we're supposed to fear is unbelief. The only thing that can keep us out of God's rest is a failure to believe, to, ru- to trust that God's promises are true and that they, they're held out to us and will su- supply everything that we need. That's what we're supposed to fear. So now when we're told to strive lest we go the way of Israel and fall into disobedience, we have to ask, what was it that Israel did? Because apparently what we're called to strive for is to avoid what they did. And what they did, first and foremost, was disbelieve. They didn't believe God's promises were true. So if, that's, if that context helps us understand what's meant when we're called to strive, then here's what it is. We're meant to, to work hard to believe more. We're meant to work hard to believe more. Another way to put it would be, we're supposed to strive to root out all traces of unbelief because that's what can bring us down. I guess there's one sense in which we're told to work hard to stop working. Not so that we can stop working, but work hard to not work. Because unbelief is really just a positive way to say what unbelief in God is, is a belief in ourselves, a sort of self-reliance that we don't need him, that we can work our way to what we need. Unbelief is a commitment to working rather than resting in what God offers us. So to strive against unbelief is to sort of strive against striving, to work, to stop working. Have you ever wondered how the the images that the Bible gives us for the Christian life as a kind of rest versus the Christian life as a kind of war, a struggle, where we fight against sin and, and the enemy that confronts us? How do those two things go? How do they be rest and struggle? I think this is how, fundamentally. We are struggling to rest more because unbelief is so natural for us because doing things on our own rather than trusting in what God offers comes so naturally to us. We have to fight daily not to trust in ourselves, not to work. That's the call for us. In the big picture, we're commanded to fear, which means to suspect ourselves. Don't trust yourself. Fear your tendency to unbelief. And we're called to work hard to root it out. Ultimately, it goes back to what we said last week, talking about the disease that confl- confronts all of us and the, the only sort of cure that is fit for that disease. The disease is at root unbelief. And the only way to get rid of unbelief, we are given this last week, are, are two things. First, a deeper affection for Jesus that takes the place of unbelief. And, and secondly, a life together as a community where we apply the gospel to each other and, and drive each other to this deeper affection. 
One of the most consistent mistakes I have made at times of doubt in my life, especially early on in my experience, was that I needed to get rid of the doubts before I could really seek Jesus, before I could come to God in his word or in, his, or in prayer. I think I thought, why in the world would I pray to someone I'm not even sure exists? Right? Don't I need to be settled on the existence of God before I can seek him in prayer? Don't I need to know that he's there before I look to anything he might have said to me? Augustine faced that same tendency. Here's the way he put it. This is his description of his pre-conversion self. This is in the Confessions as well. Just as it commonly happens that a person who has experienced a bad physician is afraid of entrusting himself to a good one, so it was with the health of my soul. While it could not be healed except by believing, it was refusing to be healed for fear of believing what is false. Augustine had tried so many other doctors and they'd all proven false that he was frozen until he could prove to himself that this doctor wouldn't lead him astray. He couldn't commit himself to Jesus and he went nowhere. He was stuck. If that's where you find yourself, do not stay there. Think about this. You wouldn't refuse to pursue a possible spouse until they could prove that they weren't crazy, would you? Prove it by you know, some sort of mathematical problem, by some sort of scientific experiment, by some sort of legal brief or logical syllogism. Would you do that? Would you force them to produce documentation proving that they're a trustworthy spouse? Or would you engage them in a relationship first and test out their claims to sanity in that context? Obviously, you have to give yourself to it first, to want it to work first, to be open and honest in it. And that is what's called, that's what we're called for. If we want to replace the unbelief that confronts all of us with a new and deeper affection for Jesus, then the first thing we've got to do is come to him and see if he is who he claimed to be. And, and I don't just mean read your Bible. I mean, read it with a desire to hear him, to actually want it to be true. Without that kind of humility before the text, the text will not impact us in the way that we need it to. We have to come with, with a deep and sincere prayer that God would open the eyes of our heart, not just to understand intellectually, but to see it for what it is, to sense it, to taste it, and know that it's good. And, like we said last week, if we're going to do this, if we're going to fear in a healthy way and strive in a healthy way, we have to do it together. Ultimately, our sin affects us like blind spots. We can't see it. So we need other people to show us where those are, other people to keep us accountable. And ultimately, this is the last thing I'll say. It's been one of the sweetest things for me in, in, in my journey, my striving against unbelief. We need other people in our lives to show us that the gospel is true for them. Have you ever noticed that when Paul talks about corporate worship, he says we're supposed to sing to each other? Have you ever noticed that? It's not, we, all, we typically think about, about singing together, singing to God, and we do some of that, and some of the psalms are oriented towards God, and that, that's great. But he also says we're supposed to sing to each other. I think what he has in mind there is that while singing to each other, we are telling each other that the gospel is true. We have known it from experience. We are experiencing it today. Some of the most intense times of doubt that I've had in my life, I remember vividly standing in church and not singing at all just listening to the people standing around me sing and give thanks to God for the gospel that had held them in faith that week, that had brought them back. 
I remember it. Like, I, I have these vivid senses of it. It is such an emotional thing to listen to people tell you that the gospel is true. And I think we need that in, in lifestyle too, not just in corporate worship. We need to be in, in the lives of people who, who are encouraged in their faith and who are telling you, yes, you know, I'm testing this out and it is holding true for me. So hold on. Hold on. We need people who we know aren't crazy telling us that they know Jesus is who he says he is so that we, can, so we know that he's worth the work that it sometimes takes, the striving that it takes to beat down unbelief. So let's do it together. Father, help us. Help us. We are so prone to unbelief. And we know that that's going to be true as long as we live. Don't hold that against us. Oh, Lord, please help us to see you and to love you for who you are. That is a supernatural thing we know. Because what's natural to us is our sin, our selfishness, our confidence in our own ability. I pray that you would help us to see more clearly the disappointment that all other sources of rest have already been in our lives. Would you help us to see that disappointment more clearly than we see any doubts that might keep us from trusting to Jesus? Help us to see more clearly all of the things we have tried and have disappointed us, then we see the doubts that are holding us back from Jesus. And would you help us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and through love to him, through deep satisfaction in him, turn away from the unbelief that holds us back. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.